Welcome to Click, Treat, Repeat. This is a horse-focused podcast discussing positive reinforcement training, equine management and welfare, and other horse-related topics. So let's get started. I also looked at another study from 2014, and they looked at a few different species of animals and basically looked at how they moved and behaved with one another. And what they basically found was that there are two main types of movement that would occur within a horse herd. So like specifically when they're looking at horses and it was basically like herding and departure. So herding would be like trying to basically like really get the group moving, almost forcefully kind of initiate movement. And then departure could be like more of a subtle movement of like, oh, they're kind of just, you know, somebody is stopping grazing and lifting up their head and then other horses do that and then they all start to move and they found that the stallion most commonly displayed the herding behavior but the initiations of departure could be basically displayed by any group member this study that i'm talking about um call it's called movement initiation in groups of feral horses it did talk about some dominance theory things that are pretty outdated, but I think that there are still pieces of information in it, more so like their direct observations rather than, you know, the kind of like hierarchy they're imposing onto it, like just take literally like what they saw. I think that there's some really useful information there. With the study that I was talking about, they intentionally left out the breeding season and how the horses moved then because of the herding behavior. So I wonder if it would change at all if they followed some of what the other study did and looked into that more. Yeah, that's a good point. That would be really interesting. I feel like there need to be more studies on feral horse behavior that really either just like don't subscribe to the dominance theory type of belief about hierarchies or just focus more so on observations and sharing like literally what they have observed rather than putting their own like descriptions onto what they're seeing. Because, I mean, anybody can look at something and make conclusions about it that might be incorrect or they might be correct. But I really think it's important to have that information out there where you can, I guess, like see objectively like this is what they observed. So I think, you know, usually they will at least also include that information, but there really need to be more studies on that. Another interesting study that I did look at that is not totally related, but I mean, I think we've, we could probably cover it more in depth, but we have mentioned that humans are not a part of the horse's hierarchy and that humans can't like basically cause like respect and like become the alpha through body language or whatever. But that's not to say that body language has no role. I just think we should point that out because, well, I mean, you can sort of just probably, it seems obvious that if your body language is in a, you know, very like combative form they may interpret that as you threatening them or whatever. I mean, in the wild, like different species do interact with each other and do, you know, read into each other's behavior a little bit, but it's just that like, we're not going to be communicating with them in the same way that they're communicating with individuals of their own species. But the study that I looked at was called domestic horses prefer to approach humans displaying a submissive body posture rather than a dominant body posture by Amy Victoria Smith et al. from 2018. So what they did is they basically allowed the horses a free choice between approaching a human with 
like supposedly a submissive posture or a human with supposedly a dominant posture. I can't remember exactly what the postures were, but they did have no facial cues present. They had them keep a blank face, just the posture only. So I think that that's interesting. Oh, and both of the humans had previously given the horse food rewards. So they had some type of positive association previously with both of the humans. And the horses were significantly more likely to approach the submissive postured person. So I think that's really interesting, just being aware of how like, even though yes, we're not like becoming the alpha through body language or whatever, but there are certain ways of like, how you might use your body language that might come across as like, a threat or pressure or things like that to the horse. And they may want to avoid that, especially even if it's not their natural knowledge, even if they've just kind of been conditioned to it through basically like forceful types of training where people maybe have body postures that are similar to that. So, I mean, definitely like be aware of your body posture, but just understand that like, it's not a major tool that we're using to like train our horses and become the alpha. Yeah, that's a really good thing to bring up. And there's a lot of studies that suggest horses can learn human body language and read expressions too. So it's not an assertion of dominance to stand a certain way necessarily, but it could elicit some sort of response. And it's not really an understanding that we're trying to be a leader. It's just, it's either conditioned or kind of a natural instinct. Like if we're standing staring right at them super tense that might be a little intimidating that is a very good point I mean like (laughs) I think we can accidentally put pressure on horses or make them uncomfortable by doing things that to us are just natural like for example like approaching a horse straight on I think we've talked about this before but horses tend to like to approach each other and approach things in sort of a curve and so when we do something like walk straight up to them you know confidently and approach like they may interpret that as being a form of pressure or being some type of body language that is possibly alarming to them, even though for us, that's a normal way that we would behave. So yeah, I mean, I think that's really interesting. I guess, I don't know, I just feel like I'm on a study kick. So (laughs) another study that I read was called Relationship Between Oxytocin and Serotonin and the Fearfulness, Dominance and Trainability of Horses by Kim et al. from 2021. Again, this study also had some basically dominance type of language that I don't believe is scientifically accurate, but there's still some interesting stuff here because they found that what they perceived as dominant behavior, so like probably resource guarding, aggression, things like that, it was actually negatively correlated with serotonin. So the less serotonin that the horses were producing, the, I guess, like, yeah, the less serotonin, the more supposedly dominant they were. So I think that also kind of goes to show that it's really not a personality trait. It's sort of like related to, you know, various processes that are going on with your, in your body that can clearly change when, you know, situations change and, you know, what neurotransmitters they're producing can change. I mean, like I have an anxiety disorder and I take a medication that helps me have less anxiety and like changes my neurotransmitter productions. I'm not going to say I'm anxious as a personality trait. I mean, it's more so like just something that's kind of going on in my body that can change and does change with or without medication. So I think that it's important to kind of recognize that with horses and knowing that there may be things that we can do that can help with their 
serotonin production that might therefore help them not, you know, display these resource guarding or aggressive behaviors as commonly. So I think that's super interesting. I'm really glad you talked about that one because I wanted to go over it, but I didn't get to it. So thank you. <laughs> yeah, it was a really interesting one. I, I like that one. I hadn't actually read it in a while, but whenever I go back and read my little summaries, it all comes back when I actually read it. So <laughs> yeah, this is not related to serotonin production, but <laughs> going back to horses aren't people, there's a study from McGreevy and McLean in 2009 titled, Can We Align Horse Training and Handling Activities with the Equid Social Ethogram? And I mean, honestly, a lot of it was them bashing Monty Roberts techniques. So I'm not going to go into that again, since we already talked about him a little bit. But it talked about how natural horsemanship in general perpetuates the idea that we fit in the horse's social structure and need to assert dominance to gain respect and create a partner who wants to engage with us. So going back to the, the study with the car, what they were doing join up. And with that, you're ultimately driving a horse forward with pressure and then at some point you stop and you want them to engage with you and that's just not a behavior that horses do to each other so I don't understand how it came into training where you're trying to be like a horse that was always confusing to me but also it talked about how in this study a lot of what horses do is really unnatural it's not normal for them to be galloping around racetracks or jumping or doing dressage movements. These are things that we teach them and they're responding for a reason. It's not because we're a horse. <laughs> and then lastly, they were talking about how horses see us. So do they see us as one of them, as a predator, as something else? And the conclusion that they came to is that they see us more of like an object. We're just a stimuli in their pasture, which is kind of sad because we want them to love us and see us as like their friends, but it makes sense. We're just something that provides them what they need. Yeah, I think that is a really good point that like what we're usually training horses to do is not natural for them. I mean, even like some of the stuff that I've trained with positive reinforcement, I mean, the horse is not going to naturally be doing that behavior, like stepping up on a tire pedestal. I mean, yeah, they might step up on stuff, but there's, I mean, that's not something that they would typically do on their own. So I think that kind of, you know, like we're asking them to do things in a way that other horses are not, other horses don't chase other horses around until they like do a particular behavior, like touching a cone or something like that. Or like you said, racing around a track, like some of it is more natural than others. Stepping up on a pedestal might be a more natural behavior in the sense that like they might step up on stuff in the wild, but still like cueing it and expecting them to do it at that particular time is not something that other horses ask horses to do. That goes back to also a lot of people expect, I think their horses to do stuff for them just out of the fact that like, oh, they're my horse, they should love me, or they should do it out of respect, or really any of those things. I think you see a lot of traditional sort of trainers want things done out of respect. But I also think we're seeing a rise of people right now who typically take more gentler training approaches, but who really are moving away from using like intentional like reinforcers like food and pressure and things like that. And instead just being like, I want my horse to do it because they like me. And I think like that's not really scientifically supported like what you said with that study. I mean, I'm not saying that our horses don't like us. I think my horses like me or the horses that I work with like me. And I think that I have a relationship with them and things like that. But it's just, 
I mean, if you're expecting them to do a particular behavior for you, then there has to be something that is going to motivate them to do that particular behavior for you. Um, and that's typically, typically going to be reinforcement, whether that's food or pressure or whatever. So I think, yeah, that's a kind of a good thing to point out. And it also reminds me of last year at Clicker Expo, somebody, it might've been Alexandra Kurland said like, we're a part of the environment. So when we're training, we have to see ourselves as being basically a part of that horse's environment and the way that we are positioning ourselves during training or things like that, even though it may not be like, you know, us mimicking horse body language, like the natural horsemanship trainers think we can basically be part of like the antecedent arrangement and influence how the horses are going to engage in a certain behavior. So I think that's all really interesting and not like super related, but kind of related. Yeah. I mean, I feel like that's this whole podcast. (laughs) It's kind of related, but not really. Yeah, pretty much. (laughs) It's okay. (laughs) We're just doing our best. We're just chatting about horse topics and that's, that's okay. It just shows how our brains work, I guess, which is a little bit chaotic, but it's okay. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, (laughs) I wrote a super detailed and organized blog post on dominance theory. I just remembered it like while we were talking, like the pretty little bit ago um okay it was in June of 2022 so like six months ago ish not that long ago and that's very detailed so if somebody wants to just read a very clear like very (laughs) well organized summary of dominance theory and why it's debunked we can link that maybe and I link to studies and stuff in there I mean, yeah. So if people are like, this is too disorganized, there's always other resources out there. But I do think we've covered interesting topics and maybe brought up some stuff that isn't commonly talked about in the context of dominance theory. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Click, Treat, Repeat. Feel free to check us out on Instagram at Click, Treat, Repeat pod. You can find Jen at Genuine Equine and myself at bonafide.bt. We upload new episodes every Monday and hope to see you then. Happy training!